Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. How many of you here have ever flown in an MEF aircraft? How many of you actually had me as the pilot? I guess the other question would be, how many of you, having flown in an MEF aircraft and all flown with me, will never, ever want to fly? No, I'll forget that one. Um, It's my privilege tonight to share with you a little bit about the work of MEF. We're now in our 71st year. But I want to stress, this is not a history lesson. It's very much God's story. Murray Kendon, who was a Kiwi, was flying with the Air Force across the Atlantic during the last war for four years on coastal command. And on those long flights, he realised that planes could actually be used to bring help and hope to people in isolated places. And he shared that vision with other people. And many encouraged him to actually get on with it and start the organisation that he had in mind. So in 1945, Murray formed Mission Aviation Fellowship. It was then known as Missionary Aviation Fellowship, but we've changed our name a few years ago. And over the next two years, he was joined by Jack Hemming, Stuart King, Ken Ellis, and Tom Bannum. In those early days, the men formulated the purpose uh, of the the organisation and also the vision. Now, this is a modern rendition of what the early founding fathers put together, but it's the same meaning. And I just praise God that I was able to work in an organization that carried on with the same purpose to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people around the the world. Now, looking at the um, purpose and vision is actually a very good reminder that that aviation is not actually our purpose for being. Our focus is on people. And technology, which many of us pilots and engineers love, of course, is merely a tool for spreading the gospel. So the next key issue that faced those early men was to actually plan a ground and air survey of a potential field. And they focused on Africa. That's where Murray felt it should be. And in 1947, they collected enough money to buy a used Miles Germany aircraft. And they toured the UK raising prayer and financial support for a 10-month survey of Africa. And on the 13th of January, um, Stuart King and Jack Hemmings set off from Croydon Airport on the long journey to Nairobi. There was no GPS or sat-nav, and large parts of the map, which, which I used to fly to, had blank areas, and it, they used to say on the map, no terrain believed to be above, and they would give you a height, and you just hoped that, they were, that their beliefs were right. But they, uh, over the next um, six months, they surveyed the Sudan, Congo, Central and East Africa. But sadly, the mountains claimed the underpowered Germany in Burundi. It got caught um, in downdrafts trying to cross the mountains, and Stuart said at the time, we had much to learn about mountain flying. Or did this actually mark the end of the vision? It was a huge shock for them, both physically and spiritually. But the survey had to be completed, and of course they had to do it by road. 
And interestingly, the results showed that most of the countries they looked at didn't actually need an aeroplane, except for Sudan. Today, MEF is flying in 26 countries around the world, and our newest program is Liberia and West Africa. And we're in the very early stages of setting up a program in Myanmar, Burma. We're currently operating 135 aircraft. That's for those of you who like technical stuff. And it's from a wide range of Cessnas to Twin Otters and GA-8 aircraft. That leaves you all a lot wiser, doesn't it? But I love that stuff as a, as a pilot. We've got more than 1,300 staff, including over 900 local staff in the countries where we work. And MES work is made possible by 200 very professional pilots and also 100 licensed engineers. But they're slow coming on the scene, these poor engineers. I'm not one myself, by the way. Um, and in, in addition to those, we have a support team made up of hundreds of people who are involved in administration, their managers, their IT experts, their accountants, their car engineers, and teachers. And all of these staff make it possible for MEF to serve 1,500 agencies around the world in the most remote places to bring hope to the most vulnerable people. We're flying those agencies to more than 1,500 destinations, and I should have said 1,500 unique destinations. Many of them are. The great news is that we fly to four times as many destinations as British Airways. <laughs> so this is not a small fly-by-night organisation. This is a big organisation that I'm talking to you about. And each day we're making approximately 176 flights, and in a year we'll carry something like 65, uh, sorry, 178,000 passengers. I'm going to take you on a very quick tour of the world in my aircraft, so strap in and listen carefully. We're going to go to South Sudan, first of all, which is Africa's newest country. Um, South Sudan has 11 million people. There are 17 main tribal groups. But sadly, the infrastructure has been damaged by over 20 years of civil war. Many people are in serious trouble as they look to the, go the government for even the most basic necessities of life, food, medicine, and education for them and their children. Sadly, the government is unable to respond to people's needs, especially in the most remote locations. That's because there's an ongoing border dispute with Sudan in the north. They're getting major problems receiving oil revenues, and thousands of people have been displaced because of the, the fighting within the country, sadly led by these two men who are in opposition to each other. Right now, we, we've got a very fragile um, period of truce between them. In South Sudan, surface travel is a real problem during the rainy season, and in addition, there are armed groups of rebels who will easily uh, attack vehicles that are found on the road even during the dry season. So the provision of a good infrastructure is actually critical to the future of the country, but that's many years away, and in the meantime, MES Air Service is vital if the vulnerable people in the most remote places are going to be helped. The government actually relies very heavily on church and other agencies for the basic health care 
education and other services. For example, more than one in 14 babies dies at birth. Vaccination and prenatal care is one of the lowest in the whole world. And much of the aid and development provided by the 170 agencies that we're currently flying for is totally reliant on being able to be carried by our aircraft. We fly their staff, we fly medicines, we fly supplies to the hard-to-reach communities. Education rates in South Sudan are the lowest in the world. 50% of children aged 6 to 17 have never, ever been inside a classroom. And there is still huge prejudice against the education of girls. And a girl of 15 in South Sudan is more likely to die in childbirth than to complete her primary school education. So there are huge problems in South Sudan. It's a desperate situation for many, many people. Here is one story. It illustrates how Christians are bringing help and hope. This is Nicola Limberger, a German nurse who's serving in Rumbeck with the United German Mission Aid and working very closely with Africa in a mission. On one of her trips to a remote village, Nicola accidentally found a little girl called Aruel. She was born with an open spine, which we know as spina bifida, while she was making a home visit, a routine home visit. She made inquiries um, to Kajabi Hospital in Kenya, which is run by Africa in a mission. And she asked them if there was any way that, that they could help. Amazingly, she found out that they are the place to go to for such a condition, since there's a pediatric neurosurgeon working there as a specialist in deformed spines, and he treats patients from all over Africa. But how would this family afford to get a rural treated at Kajabi, which was over 500 miles away? Well, her father sold two cows to help pay for their stay at Kajabi in Kenya. And MEF and AIM and another charity paid for a rule and her mother to fly from Rumbek down to Nairobi uh, with MEF. And funds were donated to pay for the operation. A rule was seen by a doctor on the very day after she arrived and surgery happened within 24 hours. The recovery was delayed, unfortunately, because a local infection developed in this little girl and she had to stay an extra two weeks after the operation, which is amazing because the, the money that her father had, had raised by selling the two, vehicle, sorry, the two, the two um, cattle was able to pay for the mother and little girl to stay on at Kajabi. We then organised another flight for her to fly back to um, Rumbek where the overjoyed family waited for them. She's now doing really well after her operation, but Nicola discovered another problem. Her left foot turned severely inward, as you can see on the picture. Amazingly, there was a pediatrician from America actually staying in Rumbeck at the time, and he was very happy to examine her. Also in Rumbeck, the, there is a Red Cross base that supports a workshop making prosthesis for landmine victims and others. And they made an orthosis for a rule so that she can soon start walking. So her future prospects have been totally changed by the devotion demonstrated by Nicola and the help she's got from MEF and the Kajabi Hospital. Just one story 
of how we've been able to help. We also operate in Papua New Guinea, which is located off the north coast of Australia, and it's the eastern half of the second largest island in the world. There you will find mountains covered in dense forest. You'll find lowland swamps and many rivers. And of course, in that sort of country, challenging airstrips. It's a beautiful country to fly in, but the terrain and weather are very unforgiving and the highest levels of professionalism are essential. Papua New Guinea's population of 6.3 million is made up of a thousand different people groups speaking more than, sorry, more than 830 languages. And many live in remote locations isolated by mountains, jungle and an absence of usable roads. Many people are struggling with the transition from the Stone Age to the Silicon Age. I guess many of us are doing that too, aren't we? And they frequently miss out on the basic government services of health and education directly because of their remoteness and inaccessibility. I'm going to take you back a little bit in history to a group of people called the, the, the Bedamuni people in Mugulu in Papua New Guinea. For many years, they were the largest unreached tribe in Papua New Guinea. They were notorious for their fierceness and for their treachery. They also practiced cannibalism, and they, also, they almost decimated the neighboring tribes. In the late 1960s, two Australian missionaries, Tom and Salome Hoey, felt a real concern for this tribe of isolated people, and they left Australia in 1968 with their five young children. There was no road or river access into the Bedamuni people. No one knew the language, and neither did the Bedamuni speak any of the local languages. So Tom and Salome knew that from the beginning they would need air support to be able to live in such a place. So MEF flew Tom over the area to search out suitable sites for a landing strip, and they finally decided upon a place called Mugulu. Tom began foot patrols into the area, and as he started to reach the, the Bedimuni people, he started to learn the language. And the biggest breakthrough came for him when he learned to say in the local language, what's that? And even though these people had not seen white people before, the Hoeys went to live among them with their boys and gradually reduced the language to writing as they translated the Bible. They found a culture where life was held in contempt and people lived in constant fear. Now, isn't that different to what you hear from so many so-called trendy people today who say, leave them alone, they're quite happy as they are in their own culture? So MEF flew a tractor in pieces um, to the closest airstrip and then the parts of the, of the tractor were flown by helicopter and the tractor reassembled. Work began on the airstrip at Magulu and the alternative was a 25-mile hike to collect supplies, so it was very important to get the strip finished. Many months of very hard labour followed and in the dry season, Salome drove the tractor by day and Tom drove it at night. They moved 30,000 cubic metres of dirt to make the strip, and the strip was finally opened in 1972, and all of their supplies, including fresh vegetables and medicines, were flown in to Magulu. This is, more, this is what it looks like today. Even nails were flown in to make furniture. Now, with the growing language fluency, Tom and Salome probed into the culture of the Bedamuni people, and what they found was that these people believed that eternal life 
an amazing gift that had been given to them had been lost forever, and this gift had come from a tree of life and another tree of death. And they'd eaten the tree from, uh, of, they'd eaten from the tree of death, and that's why death came to their tribe. And the Holy shared that eternal life is made possible through Jesus Christ, and many of them have now become followers of Jesus. And the church now numbers more than 6,000 people. The Bedamuni society has been changed. For example, a woman who would try to hide the fact if she had twins, because the people believed that if she had twins, she must have been unfaithful to her husband and had relations with another man. And so often the wife would try to kill one of those babies. Now this lady is called Menagami, and she's with her husband and their twin daughters. And as Christians, they refuse to follow the local custom. And these twin girls are the first to survive in that culture. Itabo Beni in the middle is one of the Bedamuni Christian leaders, and he remembers their past. He remembers the killing and the eating. But he says, now we have God's word. We have education. We even have a hospital to help the sick people. But math is not all about aviation. It's also about technology. And wherever you go in the world today, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, in the bush, you will find people with mobile phones, often smartphones. And so we have developed um, or, or encouraged the use of a solar-powered MP3 player with, the Bible, with an audio Bible in, in it. And the latest project that we've, that we've done in Papua New Guinea is to introduce a Wi-Fi Bible. With that little um, unit that the man is holding, with Wi-Fi Bible written on it, you can actually download the Bible and songs and Christian books from, on, onto your mobile phone without actually connecting to it. There are places in um, Papua New Guinea where public transport's available, and we've already installed these Wi-Fi Bibles into the buses so that the people can download the Bible, listen to Christian songs, and listen to sermons while they're driving on the roads. So technology, with all its problems, has a lot of benefits for the, for the gospel. In recent years, there's been a growing awareness of man-made and natural disasters, and people often say to me, what about MEF? What does MEF do for these disasters? Well, all of that list there on the, on the, on, on the left-hand side um, are disasters that MEF has been involved in. We have a, um, uh, a, a manager called John Woodbury, and he is responsible for all the disasters around the world. I don't mean he's caused them, but I mean he looks at every single one of them to decide, can MEF help with an aeroplane? Can it help with communications? And um, he's responsible for MEF's disaster response. We plan wherever we can, but we also respond to need. And John looks at every single disaster, wherever it is, doesn't matter if it's in the USA, in Europe, or wherever, he looks at every single one and decides if a response is needed. And this is um, a portable um, inflatable satellite dish that he can take with him in a suitcase anywhere in the world and immediately set up communications for the organisations that are working on the ground and need that communications back home. Or if we don't use our own aircraft, we sometimes use local operators, and this has been the case in, in the country of Nepal, where they had a, a recent earthquake, we were able to use funds that we got from the British government and from our supporters to actually 
build a relationship with a local helicopter company, and we've been using their helicopter for the last few months, ever since the disaster began. The funding we get from the British government actually runs out um, in April 2017, but the need will continue for years to come. And this brings up a major challenge which I want to lay before you, lack of media interest. When a disaster happens, everyone sees it on their television or reads about it in their newspaper. But then the news media go on to the next disaster. What happens about the first one? So these are very crucial things. It's the, very, it's the same in Haiti. There are still 45,000 people living in makeshift shelters. So how do we respond? Do we, like the media, move on to the next disaster or next sensational story? And I would just challenge you as Christians not to just follow the media. Yes, get the information, but keep asking yourself, has the disaster really finished? Are there still people suffering? And the answer is yes, there are. I mentioned at the beginning that we have a new program in Liberia, and uh, that's where we're going to head for next. That's the last one we're going to look at. And I was privileged in 2012 to go and carry out a survey in Liberia. That's been one of my jobs for MEF over the last 20 years. And we found that Liberia is a land of obstacles, but it's also a land of opportunities. Here are some of the obstacles. The healthcare system following the Civil War has been destroyed. More than half of the population live on 75 pence a day. 40% above the age of 15 are illiterate. And at every level, women are discriminated against. The other problem is that to get to the interior, there are no domestic flights. You've only got the roads, and many of them have been totally destroyed. We've got the Upper Guinean Rainforest, which is one of the biggest rainforests in West Africa, and they have five metres of annual rainfall. And so those roads get very muddy and very difficult to travel on. So if you weren't convinced, why MEF? We're going to have a look at a, a couple called Amy, Amy and Aaron Spittelsbach, who actually work with New Tribes Mission, and they work close to the Ivory Coast border at a place called Freetown. They're working on translation, literacy, and teaching the Bible. Now, they need to travel to the capital, Monrovia, on a regular basis because they have to collect supplies, and also they collect guests who are teaching in the Bible school. The journey takes between two to three days during the dry season and can take a lot longer during the rains. Using an MEF aircraft, we can fly them in one and a half hours. What a difference that can make. We've identified more than 80 agencies in um, Liberia whose work is severely limited by a lack of safe and reliable transport. And a number of people told me we only work along the main roads because the interior is so difficult to get to. And even the main roads are, 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 are tricky. So we have an opportunity. We've, got, we've set up a regular MEF shuttle flight, a bit like a scheduled service, and we recognise that having that plus a charter service is really going to enable peace, people to access the most remote areas. We've established a base in Monrovia, the capital. We've now um, settled on Spriggs Payne Airfield, which is right on the edge of the capital, and you'll see from the picture that it's right on the coast. And that brings its own problems because we urgently need a hangar to protect the plane from rain and salt. Now, originally, we expected the plane to arrive uh, with staff in September 2014 and to start flying in October. But there was a major disaster developing. It was Ebola. And this actually delayed our plans to start up 
by 12 months. The uh, Ebola meant that our staff had to work in other places in, in the short term. They had to base temporarily in Uganda and Sudan. And this is our country director, Emil Kundig, and his wife, Margaret. You'll see from the, the words up there that they've served MEF for over 31 years and have worked in many different programs for MEF. And just look at the languages that they're fluent in. You can, you can gather from their names. They're not from England. They probably would only speak two languages if they were. But they are from Switzerland, and they know so many languages. We've got a second pilot family there now. Um, Aaron and Archie Pass from Holland with three small children. They, they arrived in June of last year once Liberia was declared Ebola-free. And early this year, we had um, a, a chief engineer arrive from our program in Uganda, Mark and Sarah Newnham, with three children. And now there's the urgent need for the hangar. We're currently renting space in an open hangar. It just has a roof, no walls, and we're paying £3,000 a month to rent that hangar for the aircraft. So our plan was significantly delayed, but we always know, don't we, as, as children of God, that his timing and his planning is so much better than our own. And we, we find time and time again that God's planning is perfect. And so the plane actually arrived in Uganda in August, sorry, from Uganda in August last year and has be, began flying in September. I've already asked you one question, um, what about the next step after a disaster, but I'm actually going to ask you three questions that you ought to be asking, and this is where I'm going to close. Um, first of all, does the mission I'm, I'm interested in tell us everything? Are they doing things that we can't talk about, that they can't talk about? Are they working in places that they cannot say anything about because of security reasons? In MEF's case, the answer is yes. You'd be quite surprised at some of the countries we're working in under another name. And I know many, many missions who have to be very careful about what they say and where they're working. But it makes life so difficult for you because you are supporting people with those missions and you don't actually read about those people in their literature because it's just so confidential. Or you're praying for them or you're giving to them and you don't know what they're actually doing. You might be serving um, an agency that does relief and development work, and you think it's a Christian organization, but you're not sure. So you look on the website, what does it say? Does it talk about uh, people coming to know Christ? Does it talk about their statement of faith? Very often it cannot have items like that on its website because it's working in such difficult and closed countries. So just be very, very careful in how you judge what the missions are doing and ask God to help you to pray intelligently for his work in some of these difficult places. God bless you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.